This morning I want to look at Isaiah chapter 8, which is where we were on Wednesday night. Although we're, uh, we're moving through that chapter. I, I, tomorrow, or next Sunday, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9 and probably look at Isaiah 11 on January 1st. It's already going to be 2023. 20, is that it? Some of you are not quite so sure. Um, time flies, huh? whether you're having fun or not. So I'm going to pull a switch on you this morning. I'm going to read from a different version. And uh, at least it'll start out that way. Um, I got more Bibles up here this morning, I think, than I know what to do with. But I think the different translations in this passage are, are pretty interesting to look at, although I'm not going to probably spend a lot of time doing a comparison this morning. But I want to start in Isaiah chapter 8. I'm going to back all the way up to verse 11, although I'm kind of get my running start right around verse 14. So I'm going to read to you this morning out of the English Standard Version. It says in verse 11, I'm going to read from 11 to 22. It says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me as are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. That's what the ESV says, or the New King James says, because they have no light in them. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and, they, uh, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And when they look, on, look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness 
the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Boy, this is, this is, a, this is a heavy passage, is it not? Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into this incredible prophecy that you've given us. We ask, Lord, that we would apply it to our hearts and our environment and our times here in America 2022. Help us, Lord, to grab a hold of the Advent season of waiting upon you a season that begins in darkness but expects and looks forward to the marvelous light of your coming and so lord we pray that you would quicken our hearts that we would learn from the example of both houses of israel and that we would not walk in their ways but that we would be people who would inquire of our God. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. If you were here on Wednesday night, we, we looked at the earlier or the, the first portion of chapter eight um, and we talked a bit about Malher Shaler Hasbaz, right? The longest name in the Bible. And uh, what an what a interesting name that is. And it, it essentially, it refers to um, quick to the battle and, and run to the spoil. Um, and it, it was a name that really was defining that the Assyrians were going to come in and they were going to quickly not only overrun Israel, the northern kingdom, but they were going to quickly overrun almost all of the southern kingdom, Judah. So it's a time of uncertainty, an incredible time of uncertainty, a time of really people not knowing what was going to happen next. It was a time where you had a king who did not walk in the ways of the Lord. Second Kings chapter 16, Second Chronicles chapter 28 gives us an outline of the reign of King Ahaz, the southern kingdom's king the king of Judah. He was not a godly man. One of the commentators, as I've shared with you before, referred to him as king no faith or king of no faith, one of the two. And so it's interesting when you, when you read Second Kings and you read Second Chronicles and you compare this to what we read here in, in Isaiah chapter, really it goes back into chapter 7, which I talked about last week, that nothing really has changed, has it? It really hasn't. And, and, and I don't understand for the life of me why God allows people to be in leadership who are not godly people. I mean, it makes no sense to me. It obviously makes sense to God. He obviously knows what he's doing. He's never been on a vacation where he's far away from having his finger on the pulse of the heartbeat of this country, both spiritually, morally. Although I think that pulse at times is a very, very weak pulse, but I'm, I don't want to. I don't really want to get into that today. But at the same time, I do want to bring to your attention 
that as we consider everything that is going on in this country of ours, it's decline spiritually. It's decline morally. And I'm not even going to get into the argument that we were once a godly nation, and I, I, I tend to, beyond my opinion is I tend to doubt that. Uh, and God only, in the history of humankind, God has only chose one nation. It's the nation of Israel. And they are the chosen nation, and yet this is written to God's chosen people who went full-blown into apostasy. which really troubles me for several reasons. But one is that being God's chosen people does not guarantee that you're going to walk in his ways. And, and one of the things that I think about in this is that you and I, we are just saying it, you and I have been made to worship, Right? But part of that worship is that you and I have a choice every single day how we are going to live our lives. Do we inquire of mediums? Do we inquire of necromancers? That's those who inquire from the dead. I don't think anybody here in this room does that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand in case you do, right? But I think it's, it's, it, we can take that and look at it. You can say, well, of course we don't do that. We're Christians. But what type of spiritual deadness do you and I even expose ourselves to from time to time? Because we want to get some kind of answer. Understandably so, we want some answer. The whole thing about that uh, it is the whole thing about Advent is really teaching us the humility of patience, and also the anticipation of of the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed hope. But it, it's it's put in in the church calendar to teach us the humility of patience. And and both of those things, humility and patience, I think are in short supply in this culture. When you ask a question, what do you want? You want an answer. When someone asks you a question, what do they want? They want an answer. And they want it now. Now, I know some of you are playing this out in your head right now as we think about it, people who are pushing you. And, and uh, I'm hesitant to say this. But think of the arrogance of that framework. I want the answer, and I want it right now. Where in this passage, verse 17, 
Isaiah says, I'm waiting for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. What does that mean? David in one of the Psalms talked about that the Lord would lead us by his eye. His eye, right? Not with the bridle and the bit as with the beast, the mule. But that he would lead us with his eye. But in this scenario, God has hidden his face from the house of Jacob, no longer able to lead them with his eye. Lots of spirituality going on. The mediums, the necromancers. The previous chapter where King Ahaz said, I'm not going to tempt the Lord. How spiritual. He knew, the, he knew Torah, obviously. When in fact it was the Lord who said, ask for a sign. And he refused to do it. Imagine getting spiritual with God. Now think about that. Think about how ridiculous that really was. He's going to try to be more spiritual than God is? We are in a time of incredible uncertainty. Most of the guys that I talk to, other pastors, and none of them that live anywhere in central Oregon, actually, but most of the guys that I have serious conversations about this, ones that I trust are paying attention, are telling me, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I'm telling them the same thing. And I, I think we are in a place where we have been called to wait on the Lord who may very possibly be hiding his face from the house of the United States of America and Europe and quite possibly Asia. Apparently, the, the big move of God, if you want to call it that, is really taking place in the global south these days, but it, it's being severely infected by hyper-Pentecostalism, which I have some concerns about. What we may not recognize is that with the shape and the idealism of our culture today, the church, the true church, the remnant, because this is all about the remnant. The remnant may actually be in exile, which is not a very popular place to be. Remember I referred to it, actually Jeff came up with it for me last, uh, last Wednesday night. And when I talked about the remnant, and we want to read chapter 8 in the context of what we read earlier, or hopefully will read earlier in chapter 1 of the book of Isaiah. But in verse 9 of chapter 1 in Isaiah, it says, Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What's the comparison there? 
completely given over to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Which sounds to me like the culture that we live in, doesn't it? Unless the Lord had kept for himself a small remnant, we would have been like... We would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. And what was their end? What was their end? Their end was destruction. It says we would have been made like Gomorrah in the New King James. And and so do you you see the context here where it, it refers to The Lord, in verse 14, where it says, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a stumbling, a rock of stumbling, or the New King James will be says the stumbling block to both houses of Israel. To apostate Ephraim, also known as Israel, also known as Samaria, also known as the Northern Kingdom, the Ten Tribes, right? And Judah, the Southern House of Israel, which was overseen by whom? Or what dynasty? The House of David. So even in the midst of all this apostasy, God is still providing either a sanctuary or a stumbling block. To me, that's incredibly heavy. God is a sanctuary to those who believe. He is a stumbling block to those who do not believe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, Paul is preaching here to the Corinthians. He says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. Religious people. To the Greeks, foolishness. Non-religious people. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the first part of this passage, and I haven't even looked, go to my outline here a little bit. It talks about the remnant that is being set apart by the presence of God. The remnant that is being set apart by the presence of God. That's verse, really in verses 9 and 10 of this passage, where, which I did not read. It says, but, but be broken, you people, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together but it will come to nothing, speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Other translations has, it will not stand, Emmanuel, because that's the translation. 
Again, where does this take it back to? This takes us back to chapter 7 where the virgin would give birth to a son and they would call his name what? Emmanuel. But do you, do you, do you it, it, chapter, uh, verse 9 and, chapter, uh, and verse 10 are almost, uh, it's kind of a, um, kind of given in, in almost like a lyric, poetic type of expression. But, but he's saying, take counsel together, but it will, not, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. It's a reference to those who are opposing God and doing so in a way that they oppose God's people. When they oppose God's people, they oppose God. Jesus said when they persec- if they persecuted me, they would do what? They would persecute you. But it will not stand because of Emmanuel. Obviously, bringing in the concept God is with us, but also hearkening back to the prophecy that the virgin would be born. Excuse me, that the virgin would give birth to Emmanuel. Where did that come from? Yeah, anyway. Which, of course, as I brought out last week in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, is a reference to Jesus, the Messiah. He is God with us. And I, I don't, I don't know. I'm wrestling with this myself, but I, I don't think it's as much as it is that God is only interested in the remnant as much as it is that He recognizes that only a short, small portion will actually come to Him, and will actually come and follow Him. And will actually, in the difficult times, posture their hearts in such a way that they are stilled and that they are able to receive his still small voice. Elijah out Mount Horeb, and you had the earthquake and the strong wind. And God's voice was not in either of those. But God's voice was in that still small voice that Elijah was able to hear because he steadied himself. He postured himself. He took on the humility of patience, which is oh so unpopular today. Because the reality is sometimes we don't have an answer. We don't have an answer and we don't like not having an answer, do we? And we have to, you know, I I love the illustration of the book of Luke where, where Jesus says to Peter, take me out into the deep. You know, get in the boat, we're going to go out into the deep. And Peter says, we've been out fishing all night, and we haven't caught anything. But at your word, at your bidding, we'll drop the nets. You remember the story, don't you? They caught so many fish, they had to get one of the other boats in to come help them haul the fish in.
And I think perhaps that part of what the Lord is attempting to do and desiring to do in this particular time, of which he is in complete control. Now go figure that one out. I haven't. God being, I will throw this out here just for fun. God being in control does not mean he is the catalyst of these things. But as we read on Wednesday night, as we looked at uh, both chapter 7 and chapter 8, God is the one who's raising up the Assyrians. We, we took a quick little venture in the book of Habakkuk. God is the one who is raising up the Chaldeans. And even Habakkuk says that God is doing a wonderful work, an incredible work, a, a awestruck work that even if I told you, you would not believe it. Oh, really? God's going to do something, huh? Great. Yes, what he's going to do, he's going to send in an army. He's going to totally wipe you guys out. That's not quite the kind of awe that I'm looking for in my life. But if we really have a reverence for a sovereign God, we will reverence and respect and give room for his sovereignty. As I've shared with you before, not everyone who was carried into captivity was a complete pagan. Remember even Jeremiah with the Babylonians set him free. They didn't take him into captivity because he was prophesying to Judah, surrender to them. They will be good to you. They're going to take you into captivity. God is in this. And the Babylonians mistook Jeremiah thinking that Jeremiah was actually on their team, on their side. So they released him. So he got set free in a city that had been completely devastated. Now, who in the world wants to live there? The temple had been completely destroyed. There wasn't anything really happening in Jerusalem. But Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who prophesied and wept over the city and wept over the nation of Judah, and yet at the same time, when it was finally over, said, and done, he gets set free, but he's set free in a city that's desolate. What a ministry. What a calling. And yet to fulfill the incredible purposes of God that at times absolutely make no sense. But nonetheless, even in the darkness, God is with us. He is Emmanuel, verse 10. Second of all, verses 11 through 15. I've really touched on that already quite a bit, so I'm just going to touch on this briefly. The remnant is set apart by the fear of God. The remnant is set apart by the fear of God. Verse 13 of chapter 8, it says to us, the Lord of hosts, which is a name that really reflects upon, upon the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, by the way. It could also be translated the Lord of armies. 
without taking the time, because I'm already have taken up enough time, but without taking the time, you can trace this, this name, the Lord of hosts, and it, all the way back into Joshua, where the Lord of hosts appears to Joshua, who was about to lead the people of Israel to take the city of Jericho. And he sees him. It's a pre, I believe, a pre-incarnate appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord of hosts says, you, Him you shall hallow, Him you shall fear, Him you shall dread. In other words, it's talking about a sense of respect, a sense of reverence, a sense of awe. You know, as I was reading through this, it it just kind of came to me that how we view God, how we view God will determine how we treat God. Do we believe that God is our God or do we actually believe that we're God's God? I think that's an interesting question that at times we have to ask ourselves. Are we submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ or is God something that we kind of have found in a bottle on the beach and we rub it three times and up pops this genie in the bottle, right? That has to give us three wishes. And when he doesn't answer our prayers in accordance with the way we want them answered, then we're angry with him. How we view God will determine how we treat God, and how we treat God determines how we experience him. I think there's a lot really for us to think about in that. Lord, what is my perspective of you? How do I see you? For a moment, just for a moment, get away from the scripture on that. Look at your day-to-day life because that will determine and that will demonstrate and that will manifest how you really view God. And it will also demonstrate how you really treat God. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Jesus said, and do what? And not do the things that I say. Now, none of us are perfect, right? Right? Nobody nodded their head. That's good. Okay, none of us are perfect. But how do we treat him? I find that I receive more from the Lord when I'm in a place of submission to him. And that's going to look differently from time to time, depending on the circumstances and the situations in my life. Because when I, when I think I've got it handled, and most of you, when you think you've got it handled, we don't really need God, do we? Or at least we don't think we do. And then all of a sudden, that thing, that person, place, or thing, situation, 
that we thought we have handled has a way of turning around and reminding us of how much it is that we really do need his power in our life. That we really do need his oversight in our life. That we really do need his care in our life. I think a good prayer to pray daily is in the book of Matthew with what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's a model prayer. But I, th- I, think it's, I think it's really a good f- framework to really begin to work with, to pray daily. And I would be willing to suspect that if you work with that and start praying with it daily, you'll start, it'll start being modified. And it'll start becoming more personal and more personalized as you modify that prayer a little bit to, to, to address your own situation. And it really begins with what? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was the fault of King James on that one. But anyway, but that really takes us back to that first point that I made in, in verse uh, uh, 9 and 10. The remnant is set apart because God's presence is with them. And then the remnant is set apart by the fear of God. If we fear God, then his presence will be with us. God resists the proud, but he does what? He gives grace to the humble. So it's interesting that this little second portion of verses 11 through 15 really point us back to what? Emmanuel. God with us. He sets us apart by his presence. Thirdly, a remnant is set apart by the truth of God. I've already covered this a little bit as well. Verses 16 through 18. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I find that to be fascinating. There's some different takes on this. One is, I think it's really clear in this, that God is marking out his own people who are loyal uh, to wanting to follow him in the preservation of the testimony of his word. But one commentator talked about this where he, he, he translate or uh, interpreted this as, as the prophet saying, preserve the neglected wisdom for a later generation who will wisdom. Excuse me, a later generation who will listen. Preserve the neglected wisdom for a later generation who will listen. Now let that sink in a minute. I think about my kids. I think about my grandkids. And I think, yes, I want them to experience God's wisdom and have them listen to it. But I want some of that for myself, too. And don't you? Don't we all? Your mileage may vary on how you view the end times, and I understand that. But I believe part of our calling as Christians 
is to do our very best to pass on an experience, a relationship, a lifestyle of walking with God to our kids. Now, I know that that is difficult, and I've talked with some of you, and you've got some prodigal kids in your families. You can't undo anything. And yes, they have made their own choices. But you can be the faithful presence to them today. You can be faithful to them today. You can demonstrate by your life and at times through your words. I've gotten different stories about who wrote, preached the gospel all the times and when necessary with words. Some attribute it to Francis. Others attribute it to Cyprian. Uh, one of these days I'm going to try to dig that out, figure out maybe who did say it. But to preach the gospel at all times and when necessary with words. Because they will see more of your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ than they hear it. They do. And just to be in that place where you are able to pass that on. It doesn't mean that they're going to receive it. And that's not your responsibility. But just to live it. And to model it. And to live a life again. We are waiting on the Lord of hosts who has hidden his face from the house of Jacob. And to walk in the humility of patience, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and again, is contrary to our cultural understanding and our cultural values. but to be in a place where we are able to pass it on. A remnant is set apart by the truth of God. I think that is so important to, to look at. And when you say, inquire of mediums, necromancers, who chirp and mutter, The mediums and the necromancers of Isaiah chapter 8 were in one context, but I think we see that played out in many different contexts today. And God help us to be in a place we are able to separate the wheat from the chaff from the people that we listen to, and including those cultural voices that have been ingrained in our thinking since we were all really young. not all of it was right and not all of it honored the Lord should not a people inquire of their God I think that is probably the there's a lot of nuggets in here but I think that's probably the biggest one should we not inquire of God 
I was talking with someone a while back, and they were telling me that when they're alone that they do a lot of praying. I think that's a, a wonderful thing. But I think to even to expand upon that, the Scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. And then to take that application of what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. And to recognize that prayer is not just an event, but it's a lifestyle. It's not just an event, it's a lifestyle. Do we live our lives as one continuous prayer? If you've ever read, and I've said this to you before, but if you've ever read Augustine's Confessions, which is really a good read, by the way. Now, I don't completely agree with all his theology, and that's all right. He is unagreeable all of mine. The whole book is one long prayer. It starts off as a prayer. The whole book is one long prayer. His entire life, as he sees it, even his life before Christ, was long, one long prayer. Obviously, recognizing God's foreknowledge and sovereignty in his life, even before he became a Christian. The remnant is set apart by the truth of God. And then lastly, just real quick, those who do not want to follow God choose darkness. It says, they will pass through the land, verse 21 and 22, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king, or their president, past, present, or future, and their God, and they turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Wow. There's so many ways I could unpack that. So many ways I could speculate as I unpack that. But this describes their end. Those who maybe just want to play church but don't really want to walk with Jesus. Those who want to call him Lord, Lord, but not really do the things that he says. But even in this, and I'm going to close. Even in this, and we're going to probably touch on this either Wednesday or next Sunday. What you have in this incredible darkness that was described in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 8. Let's go to verse 9. Excuse me. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. See, the, see this reversal all of a sudden starting to happen? In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he, will, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Gentile, the Galilee of the nations, or the Gentiles of the Galilee. And then it says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Do you see the incredible grace of that? 
when you compare what I just read in chapter 9 with what we just looked at in chapter 8, remember the verses and the chapters are not divinely inspired. It is still a continuous thought. He didn't take a pause and put the pen down after, the, uh, after verse 22 of chapter 8. There is this incredible expression of grace even to those who walk in darkness. And, when I, and, and I thought about this as I was even going to sleep last night, and I thought, Lord, this gives me so much hope. This gives me so much hope. For those whom I know that currently I think are walking in darkness. Upon them a light has shined. See, that's the nature of God. That's his incredible loving nature. His hesed in the Hebrew. That that unrelenting love that he has even for those who walk in darkness.